Psalm chapter 22, and we'll look at the entire chapter today in the moments we have together. This is the word of the Lord. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. For him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and pro claim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The year that Shakespeare died, and um, four years before the Puritans set sail for America, uh, John Owen was born. John Owen was the chief of the Puritans. He's known for his writings. He was the chaplain to Oliver Cromwell, who was the head of England at the time. But his life was death. 
literally. He was married for 31 years to a woman named Mary Rook. He had a fabulous marriage. Together, they gave birth to 11 children. Only one of them lived. And when she was five, she died. And soon thereafter, Mary died. So I want you to picture this. Picture that every three years of your adult life, you lose someone close to you. 25, 28, 31, 34, 37, 40. Death. 43, 46, 49, 52, 55. Another funeral. And then five years later, you lose your beloved best friend. In the midst of John Owen's life, he wrote unbelievable passages about how beautiful Jesus is. And yet his entire life was ravaged by death, real death, real graves, 11 tiny crosses in their backyard. Nobody would have blamed John Owen if he threw in the towel and he gave it up. Nobody would have argued with him. But he didn't. Why? John Owen clung to the Psalms, and among them he clung chiefly to Psalm 22. Listen, some of you are not burying children. Some of you are. Some of you are struggling with migraines. Some of you are struggling with long chronic pain that you have a hard time diagnosing. Some of you have your own struggles that feel like you're losing children or you're losing friends. Listen, I don't know what your struggles are, but I do know that if you're like me, you've got them. And for us, the balm for our soul is found in Psalm 22. So in the moments that we have together, we're going to look at Jesus in this psalm. For every one look you take at yourself, you should take ten looks at Jesus. And thankfully, the psalmist gives us Psalm 22 because the whole psalm is about Jesus. You search in vain for a situation in David's life, even though this says it's a psalm of David. In vain do you read about his life and find a situation like this. David is describing in such great detail something that is totally foreign, even with the greatest hyperbole that you could possibly find in his life. Maybe you could say that in um, um, you know, the Engedi, when he was running from Saul, maybe David found himself at a point where he had his back up against a wall. Maybe you could twist that out to say he wrote a psalm in such a circumstance, but surely the psalm goes far beyond anything that he personally dis, uh, experienced. In 1 Samuel 23, he's on the run. He's going from bouncing from cave to cave from Saul. That doesn't speak about this situation. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, he's on the brink of being stoned to death, but neither does that. This is talking about something far worse than stoning. If you've ever struggled with the inerrancy of God's word or its prophetic ability then you must come to grips with Psalm chapter 22 because a thousand years before David, anybody in the ancient Near East ever even knew about a Roman method of killing criminals called the crucifixion. David describes it in such agonizing detail. In fact, scholars say that this is the most, most a thorough description of the crucifixion that's found in all of scripture, even more than the gospels themselves, because by the time the gospel writers write about the crucifixion, everybody knew about it. They didn't need to fill in the details. But here, a thousand years before, David describes it. And who is he describing? His own experience, perhaps. But Christians through the ages have said the psalm also is the clearest description of Jesus' experience 
on the cross itself. So let's look at it together and let's learn several things about your Savior who loves you. As he endured the agony of the cross for you, the prayer, the petition, the request in this psalm that makes it come alive is the petition that Jesus himself must have prayed on the cross. Be not far from me, O God. Can you say that with me? Be not far from me, O God. This is the prayer that John Owen prayed so many times when he was losing children. It is the prayer that many of you have prayed as you've tried to get pregnant and couldn't. It is the prayer that I have prayed so many times when I was at my wit's end. Be not far from me, O God. It's a prayer that Jesus Christ himself prayed. What do you learn about Jesus in this psalm? First, you learn that Jesus was abandoned by God so that you might be brought close. He was abandoned by God so that you might be brought close. This psalm contains 33 distinct prophecies that were fulfilled at Calvary. It speaks of greater and greater agony until you get down through verse 21. And then it's like death comes upon us and then shouts to us a resurrection victory. Have you ever wondered how Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, could cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are two buts, or it's yet in English once, and it's but in the other, same Hebrew word. Look down at verse 3. Jesus says, my God, I cry by day, and you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. Verse 3, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. There it is. Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Why was he abandoned by his father? Because his father is holy. We say, but, 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 but Jesus never sinned. That's right. He never sinned. Not once. But you know what? He became sin on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin. No, he didn't personally ever sin. He became sin for us. And an infinitely holy God cannot be with sin. And in Jesus becoming sin for us, he took on your sin and on, he took on mine, separated from the holiness of his Father for you and for me. It says that he roared like a lion. Notice the language there. It said, save me from the words of my groaning in verse 1. Oh my God, I cry by day. The word groaning there is the image of a lion. It's like a wild animal who's trapped, who's roaring for its life. Jesus experienced perfect union, perfect fellowship for all eternity with his heavenly father. And yet for you, he was separated from him. No wonder he roared like a lion. Others have cried to God. Moses cried to God. God heard him. David cried to God. God heard him. But here Jesus is crying out to God. And his cry goes unanswered. The second significant conjunction or but B-U-T in this is in verse 6, where Jesus says, but I am a worm and not a man. Jesus recognizes what's going on on the cross. 
I am scorned by mankind and despised by the people. The Hebrew word for worm is the crimson crocus. It's a, it's a larva or it's, it's literally a maggot that they would take. Sorry, I'm sorry, maggot, yes. A maggot that they would take and they would crush the larvae of these maggots. And you know what they would use the crushed larvae of these maggots for? To make crimson ink to put on the robes of kings. So here Jesus says, I am a crimson crocus. I am a worm and not even a man. In my condescension, I am being tortured. And when he's being tortured, in the passage that Lance read earlier in Matthew 27, what do they put on Jesus? They put on a scarlet, a crimson robe, don't they? And here he is a thousand years before, being tortured, being squeezed so that the ink would be spilt to color your stately garments and mine by his work on the cross. And indeed, when he is finally crushed, when he dies, it's as though the death of Jesus is what colors us in the righteousness as kings and as princes, as queens and princesses in God's kingdom. So the Father, clothed in his robes, can embrace us and say, you are mine. I am giving you the best robe, but it's coming through the spilt ink of my son, the spilt blood of the crimson crocus who was crucified for you. Jesus went up to the cross because he, um, because of the holiness of God, he went to the cross as the holiest of men, crushed for us. He was abandoned by God so that you and so that I might be brought close to him. Friends, that is the greatest news in all the world. Forget where the stock market is going. Forget what's going to happen to Greece. It's the greatest news in the world. That he loves you. And that the crimson crocus was crushed so that you might be clothed in the garments of royalty. Isn't that a beautiful image? Second, Jesus was abhorred by men so that you would not fear him. Fear them, rather. He was abhorred, hated, ridiculed, mocked so that you wouldn't be fearful of other men. So many of you have such um, complex insecurities, even as I do, because you just want other people to like you. You're constantly putting up these images. But here Jesus takes upon all the ridicule of the world from the men who sneer at him, the scribes, the elders, the priests, even the Roman soldiers, so that you would be able to stand in the face of mankind and say, my identity is not in how successful I am as a businessman or how good of a mother I am. It is in the work, the finished work of Jesus who calls me his brother. Can you say that? He was abhorred and he was hated by men. Some, um, when I was in campus ministry, uh, students from Princeton Seminary would always, always try to talk, uh, Game and I were just talking about this this morning, they would always talk to us about how they doubt the inerrancy and the prophetic utterances of scripture, and they would often talk about prophecy, and this was often a hang-up for them, because they would say, listen, there's so many things in the New Testament that were prophesied about in the Old Testament, but most of it was just play-acting. I mean, the people in the New Testament knew these words, and they, they knew what needed to be fulfilled. And even if, like, let's just give it to them. Let's just say, okay, let's imagine that they knew every one of the 360-some-odd prophecies in the Old Testament, and they play-acted every one of them. But here in Psalm 22, 
A thousand years before Christ came, David says not what Jesus will say at the cross, but he says what his enemies will say at the cross. They have no incentive to play into that. In fact, they don't want this prophecy to be true. And yet, what does the text say? It says that they look at Jesus, they mock him. All who see me, verse 7, mock me, and they make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. That's almost a direct quote from Matthew 27, verse 39 and verse 43. And they say to him, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That's almost the exact same thing that you read in Matthew chapter 27. It's one thing for Jesus to know the words of Scripture and to say them on the cross. Indeed, he may have quoted the entirety of Psalm 22. Just because he said the first line, some scholars believe it was that Jesus actually quoted the whole thing, and they abbreviate that by just quoting the first line in the gospel. But here his enemies say the exact prophetic utterance that was written a thousand years beforehand. Isn't the Bible amazing? Jesus was abhorred by men so that you would not fear men. Verse 15, he says, my tongue sticks to my mouth. When Jesus began his public ministry, he hungered in the desert. And when he dies, his final breath, he thirsts. He knows what it's like to experience the whole range of human emotion. He knows what it's like to struggle with the things you're struggling with right now. He knows what it's like to raise children in the suburbs. He knows what it's like when you just want so badly to have a family and you can't. He knows what it's like to be in despair. And he's with you. The crimson crocus. Remember the prayer that Jesus prayed that we said earlier, be not far from me, O God? Let's say it again. Be not far from me, O God. In verse 17, he says, they stare and they gloat over me. That's a good translation. It literally means they stare you down in contempt. They make fun of you by the way they're even looking at you, sneering at them. <laughs> You're the son of God? All right, miracle worker, let's see you come down from this thing. He could have, but he didn't. Why? The crimson crocus was dying for you. Verse 18, the Roman soldiers are casting lots. Matthew 27, verse 35, it says they cast lots for his garments. Roman soldiers were given the fringe benefits of getting prisoners' clothing during a crucifixion. And so here these guys are, you know, Quintus, you take his sandals. Tacitus, here, you can have what was on his head. What are we going to do with his robe? Let's cast lots for it, boys. So there they are, the Savior of the world, hanging from the cross, struggling, thirsty, being mocked. And these Yahoo Roman centurions are trying to figure out who's going to get his clothes. That's what verse 18 says. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Be not far off, O God. So Jesus was... Abandoned by his father so that you could be brought close. He was abhorred by men so that you would not have to fear men. And lastly, Jesus was abused by Satan so that you might be free finally from Satan's power. If you look down in verse 19 through 21, notice the language that 
the psalmist uses. It says, deliver me, O my soul, from the sword, verse 20, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Earlier in the psalm, it calls the men, the scribes, the elders, the priests, the Roman centurions, all these things, the dogs, the bulls of Bashan, the wild animals, the lion, right? But calls them lions, dogs, bulls. But here, he identifies one thing as a lion, as a dog, and as a wild oxen. Who is that? It's Satan himself, who was a dog kicked out of the realm of heaven, no longer allowed to be part of it because he coveted God's holy spot. He is the lion, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 and 8 says, who prowls around looking for someone whom he may devour. Satan is the wild beast in Revelation who Jesus once and finally and for all crushes and conquers and sends into the abyss. And here Jesus began his public ministry face to face with his accuser, with Satan. And he ends, not hungry this time, but thirsty, face to face with his accuser, who's joining the scribes, the elders, and the chief priests and mocking him. Surely he was a crimson crocus, crushed for our royal robes. Be not far from me, O God. In verse 22, you see a profound shift in this psalm. It gets worse and worse and worse, like you're going down to the nadir, down, 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 through the agonies of Jesus until you get to verse 21. And it's the, as though death wins. But then notice in verse 22, it totally changes. The tone of the psalm completely changes. Do you see that? I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Here's the resurrected Jesus. And David, the psalmist, describes his Lord a thousand years before his Lord lived with his threefold office of prophet, of priest, and of king. Look there in verse 22 through 24. He is the prophet. I will tell of your name to my brother. This is what a prophet does. He shouts the good news. He proclaims the Lord's will for you and our salvation. And here Jesus is doing that. He's saying, glorify him, Jacob. Stand in awe of him, you offspring of Israel, because death is not won. I have come out of the grave for you. Not only is he the great prophet, but he's also the great priest. Look at verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows. Who takes vows? The priests. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. And then he gives a benediction, as the good priest always does. May your hearts live forever. There is your Savior in his priestly role. And then you see that he's not just a priest, but he's also a king. Look at 27 through 31. It says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Verse 28, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. What a beautiful passage this is of David's to write of the psychological agony of Jesus so long before he went to the cross. This passage gives you and me the ability in the midst of our difficulties to pray the exact same prayer that your Savior prayed on the cross. 
Be not far from me, O God. Can we say that again together? Be not far from me, O God. Jesus was abandoned by God, his Father, so that you could be brought close. Jesus was abhorred by men so that you would no longer fear men. Jesus was abused by Satan so that you would once, finally and for all, when he comes again, be delivered from the power of the evil one. Because Jesus is our prophet. He proclaims to you the good news. He's our priest. He takes his vow to do his father's will even when he is being crushed like the crimson crocus on the cross. And he is our king who subdues all of his and our enemies for us. So here the psalm begins, the same very words that Jesus cried on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And notice how it ends. The last word in the psalm is the Hebrew word asah. It means done, finished, completed. The psalm begins with the very first words Jesus says from the cross, and it ends with the very last one. Tetelestai. It is finished. Friends, Jesus was abandoned by God so that you might be made whole and in him. And he knows what it's like to be in pain, for indeed this describes it in agonizing detail. And your Savior is with you. And he loves you. And he wants you to not rest on your righteousness. He wants you to rest on his. He wants to be the refuge for your weary soul. In 1674, in the midst of this horrendous physical and psychological and emotional suffering that John Owen was enduring, he wrote a passage in a book called On Communion with God. And I just want to read part of it to you because it captures so well what is so hard for us sometimes to say in the midst of pain. If I compared, Owen writes, all the beauty and value and usefulness and glory of this world, I could find nothing better, nothing more beautiful, nothing more comforting than God's love demonstrated through his agony and resurrection. Lovely in his person, in his all-sufficiency, in his gracious purity, in his holiness and in his humanity, in his authority and love and power. Lovely in his birth, when he was rich for our sake, he became poor, even like a crimson crocus, a worm. Becoming like us in flesh, being made of a woman, that for us he might be made under the law to redeem us out from its curse. He was lovely in the whole course of his life. In his holiness and obedience, in his poverty and persecution, he remained faithful, doing good, receiving evil, blessing and being cursed, reviled and reproached all of his days. Lovely in his death, yea, even most lovely in his death for sinners. For he died on the cross, Owen says so that we would know what it's like to be able to endure the tragedies of this life. To rescue you from yourself and deliver you from the ultimate tragedy of the curse and the wrath of God. Lovely in his whole enterprise of his life, death, and resurrection, being a mediator between God and us to recover the glory of God's justice and to save our soul. Lovely in his pardon with which he has purchased for us our everlasting rest. What shall I then say? 
There is no end of his excellencies and desirableness. This guy wrote this when he was burying his children. He is altogether lovely. This is our beloved, and this is our friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Your Savior loves you. He's with you. Be not far from us, O God. Amen.